Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I am blessed and honored to be in dialogue today with Dr. Francine Friedman. We will be discussing her new book, Like Salt for Bread, The Jews of Bosnia and Herzegovina, published by Brill in 2022. Francine is Emerita Professor of Political Science at Ball State University in Indiana. Francine, it's an honor to be communicating with you today. How kind of you. Thank you. Thank you. To begin, what inspired you to write this book? Um, What would you like readers to take away from it? Well, that could take the whole hour, Um, but... I'll I'll keep it brief. Um, When I was invited to Sarajevo to a conference right after the Bosnian War in 1997, I made a uh, courtesy call to the synagogue slash Jewish community center there. And I had what was scheduled to be a 15 minute meeting with the president of the Bosnian Jewish community, Jakob Finci. It turned out to be a two hour meeting because he told me stories about uh, what the Bosnian Jewish community had done during the Bosnian war that was so important to the the city of Sarajevo under siege. It was the longest siege uh, in modern history. And there was great danger to everyone um, in the city. So what fascinated me was that for (laughs) one of the few times in history, the Bosnian, the, the Jews of the city were not a target of anyone. As a matter of fact, they were permitted to leave the the city, which uh, Serbs, Croats, and Muslims were not. So some of the Jewish women and children, elderly and sick, did leave. But some of the the people stayed. Um, About 500 of them stayed because this was their city. And not only did they stay, but they used their contacts with the uh, American Joint Distribution Committee, the JDC, to import food and medicines and other things into Sarajevo, which they shared with their Serb, Croat, and Muslim neighbors. And this was really an untold story, and I thought that it should be told. Um, it wasn't really my field, but um, I decided to tell the story, and, and I did. And as I pursued the research, I became more and more astounded and uh, frankly enamored with the community, with the history 
uh, of the community, both um, uh, from the from the the time that they first came to Bosnia after the expulsion from Spain, the Sephardim came uh, there after the expulsion from Spain in 1492, all the way up to the present. So I spent about 23 summers uh, in Sarajevo doing the research. Can you explain your book's central message? Yeah, um, there are a couple, but the, the one that really, um, I wanted to get across is that a small group of people, even an ethnic minority, if you will, can sometimes make a significant difference uh, in the international arena or in, in their own country. And this is something we kind of sort of forget in this era of, of um, conflict uh, all over the place, that, that sometimes a small group of, of very determined people determined to do good can make a difference. What contribution does your book make to existing scholarship? Um, can you situate your book vis-a-vis yeah. uh, current academic literature in the field, especially that of scholars such as Aaron Rodrigue and Esther Benbassa? Ah, well, um, first of all, I believe that my book is the first English language treatment of the Bosnian Jewish community as a whole. So I start all the way back from, from uh, almost biblical times all the way to, in fact, tomorrow. Um, and I don't think that, that there is another book about this topic that does that. Um, Aaron Rodriguez and Esther Benbasa did a lot of work on Sephardic Jewry, very, very excellent work, and, and I relied on some of their uh, research for, for my book, but my book also deals with the Ashkenazim. Um, who, who did come a little bit later into Bosnia, actually in the 19th century. But um, uh, the, the two communities more or less meshed uh, right before the Holocaust and their, um, their, their fate was bound together and there, there was no difference really between the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim um, after that time, except, you know, culturally there were some differences, but their fate was pretty much the same. Why did you choose the title Like Salt for Bread? Um, I heard the analogy of the Bosnian Jews as salt in bread. And, and I can tell you, just very briefly, um, how it was explained. If you if you want to create a um, uh, ju just a, an average loaf of bread, you need flour, um, uh, yeast, and um, eggs, or, or something like that. And and there you get your bread, and it's very utilitarian. But if you add a pinch of salt 
you get flavor. So if you substitute Serbs, Croats, and Muslims for the standard ingredients for bread, and then put a little pinch of salt, which is the Jewish component, you get a delicious um, you get a delicious bread. And furthermore, the salt spreads throughout the bread, just like the Jews spread throughout um, the land in Bosnia, as well as in every facet of life uh, in society, um, in the society of Bosnia. So that's why I chose that title. What was the status of Jews in the kingdom of the Slovenes, Croats, and Serbs? How were Bosnian Jews impacted by the creation of the state of Yugoslavia to begin with? Well, they actually welcomed it. Um, there were several uh, proclam- or letters or, or proclamations made by, by the Bosnian Jewish community saying that they welcomed the, the creation. Um, it's not that um, their situation changed all that much because there wasn't a lot of um, anti-Semitic um, manifestations before then, but what happened during the the Kingdom of the Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes, and the Kingdom of Yugoslavia, which it uh, which it became in 1929, was they their situation, their status was regularized by um, uh, a 1929 law that um, recognized the community, gave them certain rights on paper, which they had more or less um, been able to to realize beforehand, but this this gave them a legal status. So uh, the the Bosnian Jews, uh, the Jews throughout Yugoslavia welcomed this new um, legal structure. What contribution did Bosnian and Yugoslav Jews make to the international brigades during the Spanish Civil War? What role did they play in Republican forces? How did they perceive General Francisco Franco? Well, that's a that's kind of an interesting story too. A, a lot of progressive youths from from Bosnia, from Yugoslavia, actually from uh, various places. I think also from the United States, headed to Spain to fight against the fascists. But what's interesting um, about the the Bosnian situation is that the Sfardim who spoke. Judeo-Espanol, um, which is, I, I, today we call it Ladino, but um, Judeo-Espanol was um, Cervantes-era Spanish. So um, it had stayed um, in a, a purer form and Spanish Spanish or, or the Spanish from Spain had moved on into more modern um, uh, linguistics, but they could understand each other. And so the Bos- the, the Spardim from, from Bosnia served as translators and were kind of a bridge between other uh, Yugoslavs, the Serbo-Croatian speakers, and the Spaniards that, that they were assisting. So it's a very interesting time period. The other thing that the Yugoslav Jews, um, uh, that, that was important about their service in the Spanish Civil War was once it was over, 
those that you know made it out alive came back to Yugoslavia and shortly thereafter their services were very useful in resisting the fascists in Yugoslavia so they, these battle tested Yugoslav Jews as well as as other Yugoslavs formed um, a, a cadre, a very important cadre that helped the partisans, especially in the early part of the war, to, um, to resist the fascists. So a very interesting time period for, for Bosnian Jews, as well as other Yugoslavs. What was the character of Germany's relationship with Yugoslavia during the 1930s before 1939? Um, Germany was, um, was already plotting how, how Europe would be um, fashioned after they occupied all of Europe. And Yugoslavia uh, would, um, of course, be part of Germany's sphere of influence. But Yugoslavia was not very advanced industrially. So Yugoslavia was supposed to be kind of a breadbasket and also a lumber producer because uh, Bosnia especially had lots of, of lumber, had lots of trees. And so um, Bosnia was seen, uh, Yugoslavia, but especially Bosnia was seen as a breadbasket, as a raw materials um, uh, supplier and as a market for Germany's finished goods. So in effect, Yugoslavia was supposed to be um, subordinate to Germany's needs. Does that answer the question? Very much. Okay. Oh, and, and one other thing that's, that's important is that at first, um, Germany said to Yugoslavia, that if it didn't make any problems, um, you know, um, agreed to, to Germany's terms, Yugoslavia would be considered a neutral. And uh, so the, the, um, uh, the Yugoslav uh, royal house decided on that, that path. Didn't work so well, but that was, that was the path that they, uh, that was a the decision they made. What was life like in Sarajevo during World War II? My, my understanding is that it was absolutely miserable um, uh, for everyone. Um, of course, it was more miserable for the Jews who were um, first deprived of all of their property and, and their capability of participating in society. And then they were transported to the camps, to Yasinovats and, and other um, concentration camps. But even for the population as a whole, it was miserable because, frankly, the, the rulers of the independent state of Croatia, which had captured and integrated Bosnia within its uh, borders, um, th their name was the Ustasha. Uh, they, they were terrible administrators. 
So life was miserable. The Ustasha were were greedy and um, you know took as much. Their, their their main goal was was to steal whatever they could, and uh, the the rest of the population was just really in in bad straits. And and one of the winters, I think it was the winter of 1942, was one of the coldest on record. So the the Jews in the concentration camps were freezing to death, but so also were the uh, Sadailia, which is the Sarajevo, um, the name Sarajevo population gives itself. And they were cutting up they were burning furniture and books and things like that just to stay warm. It was miserable. What were the similarities and differences between Sephardi and Ashkenazi suffering among Bosnian Jewry in the Holocaust? Um, for uh, In the case of Bosnia, there was no difference whatsoever. A Jew was a Jew. And they made no distinction between Sephardim and Ashkenazim. So um, they suffered alike. Uh, there was, there, as I mentioned, um, there, there was a, a difference in uh, social norms and, and culture during the interwar period be, between World War I and World War II that they kept themselves, each community kept itself to itself. But once the fascists came in, all the differences were wiped out and um, it was um, the community tried to help however they could each other. One interesting factoid though that I should mention is that um, there was one distinction made between the Ashkenazim and the Spardim and that was that each of them had its own separate trustee, which is a po- uh, which was called Povieranek, which was a uh, the liaison between the community and the Ustasha administration. So there was one Povieranek for the Sephardic community and one for the Ashkenazic community. But the suffering was the same. What role did Povierenitsi play? How did the Povjorenitsi emerge? And can you compare and contrast the Povjorenitsi in the Balkans with other forms of collaboration during the Holocaust elsewhere in Europe? Well, um, first of all, the Povjorenitsi were not Jewish. So there was, yeah, right. So, so there was, um, they weren't collaborate, the, the Jews weren't collaborators, the Povieranitsi, who were Muslims, um, Catholics, and uh, occasionally a Hungarian or, or Albanian or somebody. Um, they came about as trustees on behalf of the Ustasha government to take over um, on behalf of the government, all of the Jewish businesses and um, to, to um, keep them running if they were making a profit or, or keep them running until the state nationalized them. Um, so the Povieranitsi just 
walked into Jewish businesses and took them over. And of course, the Jews were sent to the camps pretty much. Now, I mentioned that the um, each of the Jewish communities, the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim, had its own povierinik. So there was, which is the singular of povierinitsi. Um, each, uh, so each of them had their own trustee, which again was a liaison uh, with the administration. Other cultural um, uh, and, and social uh, institutions, if they were large enough and if they had any assets, also had a povierenik. And um, this was a way for the Ustasha, the, the fascist government, to steal all of the assets of the Jews. How did Ante Pavlich ascend to power? What were the origins of the Ustashe movement? And can you describe Pavlich's anti-Semitic policies? Well, that in itself is <laughs> okay. Um, I'll be brief. Okay. Um, Ante Pavlich was a Croatian lawyer who, um, when the when the um, kingdom of the Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes became the kingdom of Yugoslavia because uh, there was a royal coup. Uh, the king um, uh, took over, in effect, all of the functioning of government. There, there was no uh, parliament for a while, etc. And the king and and the most of the administrators were Serbian. So the Croats. Um, the, the radical Croats said, the heck with this, and they left, they went to Italy and, and supported by Mussolini for a while, they created a radical group called the Ustasha. And um, um, Ante Pavlich was, was, one, was the leader. And one of the, the seminal um, uh, ideals of the Ustasha was anti-Semitism. So, um, and, and we see this happening, um, we see this playing out when Pavlich came back to, uh, to Croatia, uh, when the Germans had um, uh, invaded Yugoslavia, he came back to Croatia, was declared Poglavnik, which means leader, and immediately started sending out declarations uh, against the Jews. So, so there were laws that um, Jews couldn't walk on the sidewalk, they couldn't visit parks, they couldn't go to movies anymore, they had to register their businesses, they had to wear a yellow uh, uh, star of some kind. It was sometimes it was metal, sometimes it was cloth, etc., etc., etc. So their lives became more and more constrained. That was, you know, anti-Semitism um, on the move. And uh, finally, he created um, the concentration camps and sent the Jews there. And 90% almost um, of the Jews of Bosnia, of Croatia slash Bosnia um, died because Bosnia was uh, incorporated into Croatia, into the independent state of Croatia. 
How did Bosnia's Muslims respond to the creation of the independent state of Croatia? And how did they respond to Pavlic? And how did Pavlic uh, treat Muslims uh, in Bosnia while in power? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, there's no simple answer to that. It's a very complex question because not all Muslims did the same thing. A lot of Muslims actually, um, maybe not immediately, but eventually went into the partisans to resist the fascists. But some Muslims, some Bosnian Muslims, uh, thought that when Pavlic came in, he made all sorts of promises that the the Muslims were, uh, in effect, the cream of of, uh, Croatian life and and they would be treated well. And and indeed, some uh, Croatian elites uh, became high members of the government. But after a while, it became pretty obvious that the Ustasha didn't know how to govern. And interestingly, some Muslim elites in Bosnia wrote a letter to Hitler and asked if um, Hitler could declare Bosnia a German protectorate and get rid of the Ustasha, who were criminals and and, uh, didn't know how to run a state to save their lives. That didn't go anywhere. But so that's why I say it's very complex how the the Bosnian Muslims responded to this. Um, A lot of them went to the partisans. Um, Some of them were collaborators. And also, by the way, some um, uh, with the instigation of uh, Amin al-Husseini from, from Jerusalem, the, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who was a good friend of Hitler's, some of them uh, were part of an SS uh, uh, group that um, uh, was supposed to be only Muslim, but was uh, in the end mixed Croatian and Muslim. And um, without telling the whole story, because that could take a long time, they were taken to France to train, and which, which went against what they were promised. They were promised that they would stay in Bosnia and uh, uh, defend their homes, but they were taken to France to train and they rebelled against, they, they killed some German uh, uh, officers and, and they rebelled. This was the only rebellion of SS troops against, uh, against Germany. And, and so it's a very interesting chapter. So anyway, the bottom line of all of this is that uh, the Muslims had differential responses to, um, uh, to Pavlic, uh, who, who made very um, flowery statements about how important the Muslims were to to the Croats. Um, And as a matter of fact, the the Muslims, uh, in his view, were Catholics who had um, uh, converted to Islam a long time ago, but they were still the cream of Croatia. Not everybody bought that, but... (laughs) 
Can you describe the fate of Jews sent to Jakovo? Yeah, uh, that was uh, women and children. Um, they, they died. Um, they were maltreated, um, underfed. There was disease. Um, I, uh, um, one of the most poignant things that I did when I was in, uh, when I was in Bosnia, um, every year the Bosnian Jewish community uh, went to Jakovo, which is in Croatia, and to commemorate um, the, the, that horrible place because there's a cemetery there that has markers with the actual names of the women and children who died. This is one of the, if not the only, one of the, the few uh, Holocaust-era cemeteries that actually you can identify the graves of the people. Most of, most of the women and children were from Sarajevo, by the way, so it's very close to their hearts. But when you look at the cemetery, there's a little area in front for the children, the children from one month old to, you know, three, one-year-old, something like that. I mean, it, it's so painful to see. If we move from the, the, the Holocaust to a different atrocity situation facing uh, the Jews of Sarajevo, I'd be curious if I could ask you to comment on the events recorded in the Sarajevo Megillah. What is the Sarajevo Megillah? Uh, what events does it commemorate? Can you describe those events and the main protagonists and antagonists? In, okay. that, in that episode. I can. Um, uh, we're moving back in history now, but, but this is also very closely tied to the, um, the Bosnian Jews, as well as in particular the Sarajevo Jews. This was an attempt, it, first of all, uh, uh, as you know, a Megillah is a scroll. And this particular incident that I'll tell you about is somewhat likened to um, the, the, um, the scroll of Esther um, in the Bible. So uh, because this was an attempt by a non-Jew to, uh, to massacre Jews. And um, so... But, but it's got an interesting twist, so, so I'll tell it very briefly. Um, there was a, a Jewish, reputedly a Jewish drunkard named Moshe Havilo, um, I think that's how it's pronounced, who decided to convert to Islam. And he became a member of the Dervish sect, which is a small sect of Muslims. But he was a troublemaker, and he tried to get the Jews in trouble with the, uh, with the Ottoman Pasha of, of that uh, area. The Pasha didn't play along with that and actually executed Moshe Chavilo, who, who became uh, 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 a dervish 
who had become a dervish. And some of the dervishes were really mad about this, but there was nothing they could do about it until a new Pasha came along who was also a dervish. And they told him about this situation. And he decided to get back at the Sarajevo Jews. So he uh, captured the rabbi, uh, Moshe Danon, and uh, 10 other elders of the community, put them in prison and said, you have to pay a ransom. And it was a huge ransom that the community couldn't possibly meet. And he said that if they didn't pay the ransom, they would die. So uh, a member of the, this is how the story goes, a member of the Sarajevo Jewish community talked to some Bosnian Muslims and told them, what was going on. And they said, this will not happen. And so a bunch of Bosnian Muslims from Sarajevo went to the uh, Pasha's palace and freed the rabbi and sent a letter to the Sultan telling what had happened and complaining about this Pasha. And they, so here are Bosnian Muslims freeing Jewish, their Jewish neighbors and um, from, from somebody who wanted to kill the Jews. So that's where the parallel is uh, with the, uh, the, the scroll of Esther. So the reason why it's so special of course, the, the Jews were saved, but also the, the fact that Muslims were, would help the Jews escape from another Muslim who was perpetrating evil. It's very interesting. Of course, um, as I mentioned in the book, there are some possible other political reasons that the Muslims took this action. But, but for our purposes, what's interesting is how they saved their neighbors. And um, th this gives us a sneaky peek into what's going to happen uh, about a century later when Jews were saving Muslims, um, you know, and, and Serbs and Croats later on during the Bosnian War. But but that's what's important. And so every, every year, um, the Bosnian Jews, except for during COVID, Bosnian Jews go to the grave of the rabbi, which is in Stolac, near Stolac, uh, a city uh, in Bosnia, and um, say a prayer and, and uh, drink wine and, and commemorate this glorious situation that that where the the jews of sarajevo were saved wow how did joseph tito rise to power and how did he remember or think about the jewish contribution to the partisan movement well tito was a communist um 
uh, it's kind of murky how he, I, I think, how he came to power. I think he took over when um, his predecessor in the mid-1930s was called back to, to the Soviet Union and kind of disappeared. But uh, Tito was a party man, and uh, he followed the, the Stalinist prescriptions, and he became the head of the Communist Party. And when the fascists, when the Germans invaded the communists uh, were finally given the okay by the Soviet Union to go to the woods and and um, uh, uh, rebel against uh, the, this uh, uh, fascist invasion. Um, Remember, in 1939, there was a secret agreement between the Germans and the Soviets, uh, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Agreement. And so it wasn't a given that communists would uh, resist. But once they were given the okay by Stalin, Tito went to the woods with, with the partisans at first, mostly Serbs, but then um, uh, they kept uh, the the from from their mountain um, hideouts. They kept the propaganda coming out that the partisans welcomed Serbs, Croats, Muslims, uh, Roma, Gypsies, Jews, everybody to fight against the aggressor. And this was uh, this was what happened. Uh, people eventually flocked to the partisans and um, uh, Tito, uh, the, the Tito and his administration mostly did not uh, um, uh, determine who was what religion or national group, just anybody who would fight was welcome. Um, there was almost no anti-Semitism. Uh, there were actually several Jewish heroes, of, uh, which is, uh, um, you know, the highest honors, uh, 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 heroes of the, of the um, uh, Yugoslav peoples, or um, I'm, I'm blocking on what they were called, but they, there were several heroes who, who received the highest honors, um, uh, but, but they weren't honored as Jews. They were honored as Yugoslavs, so, so they weren't discriminated against in that way. How was Yasenovac remembered in Tito's Yugoslavia? Kind of not very much. Um, when, uh, when the partisans were, were winning the war, the Ustasha blew up Yasenovac, and there's almost nothing left except a monument, which I understand Tito never visited. So there's almost nothing left there to commemorate what happened there. Um, it wasn't only Jews that, that were murdered there, but um, most, most of the Jews who were murdered were murdered there. Um, after the war, the commemorations were for Yugoslavs who were victims of the fascists, not Jews, not, you know, the Holocaust was 
recognized, but it wasn't given too much pride of place. How did Bosnia's Jews fare under communism? How did communist Yugoslavia treat Jews in comparison and contrast with other Eastern European countries? Um, Jews could, under, under Tito's Yugoslavia, under socialist Yugoslavia, Jews could practice their religion. If, but if you were a religious Jew, you would not belong to the Communist Party. You wouldn't rise to, to a high level in any facet of society. So, but there was no, um, it, I was not able to find any um, overt anti-Semitism to speak up. Um, Jews uh, rose, uh, Jews who were in the Communist Party rose to very high levels or could rise to very high levels. Some of those uh, Jewish heroes that I talked about became, I don't know, the head of the movie producing area or, um, you know, various other uh, heads of factories. Um, but um, Jews who, who, were religious, didn't have a really uh, great career trajectory, but they were not punished for, or, you know, for, for being Jews. But frankly, um, this was the same for every religion, uh, people from every religion, because the, the churches during World War II did not uh, uh, distinguish themselves very positively. I mean, there were a lot of Catholics, just for example, um, who supported the Ustasha, who strapped on a gun and killed people. There were even Catholic priests who were the heads of concentration camps. So, and, and the Orthodox, uh, uh, some of the Orthodox priests were very supportive of another rebellious group called the Chetniks, which killed people that they didn't like also. So communist Yugoslavia did not really value religion at all. And the people who survived the war, they really didn't value the churches that much because they were all, uh, uh, most of them were implicated in uh, collaborationism. Collaborationism. On, on this very note, um, there's a quote in the book on page six hundred and forty-three, uh, <laughs> where, where you write as follows: um, In the nineteen eighties and nineties, both Serbian and Croatian nationalists rejected the Titoist regime's assignment of guilt for the crimes committed, for the crimes attributed to their ethnic group during World War II, Croatian nationalists began to embrace a more positive reinterpretation of the Ustasha, including genocide denial. Similarly, Serbian nationalists rejected the charge of Serbian hegemony in the interwar Yugoslav kingdom. Can you elucidate on what you are alluding to? Yeah, um, what I had just described about the rejection of religion was maintained while Tito was alive. In 1980, he, he died, 
And thereafter, nationalism rose uh, slowly, but but inexorably. And I should mention that uh, uh, most Serbs are Orthodox, most Croats are Catholic, and Muslims are Muslim. Um, there's a, a distinction between a nationalist, uh, the nation of, of Muslims, and the religion of Muslims. But anyway, so under Tito, the religious part of each of these groups was, uh, was subordinated. But after Tito died, uh, we see the nationalists uh, reinvigorating their, their national religious connection. And um, as they did that, they looked back at World War II and said, hey, that's not the narrative that, that we want to portray. So the Catholics tied to the Ustasha, that was a really negative thing. So they, they started to say, well, the Ustasha oh, did do some bad things we understand, but they weren't, they were nationalists. This was a nationalist movement. And, you know, there were some bad apples, but, but really they were protecting the, the Croatian nation. The, the Serbs said um, that um, the, the Serbian nation was getting kind of a, a bad reputation from, from being called um, uh, uh, dominating uh, interwar Yugoslavia. And, and uh, they really weren't like that. It was um, a positive time for, for everybody. And so um, as a result, there was a lot of denial of Ustasha crimes during World War II, of Chetnik or Serbian crimes during World War II, of Muslim crimes during World War II. And there was an attempt to, to put more positive spin on this period and these people, these groups, during this period. And um, so, so the Serbs were rejecting the charge of Serbian hegemony. The, the Croats were saying, well, um, some people died in Yasenovac, but, but really we didn't kill them. You know, uh, Croats were not nearly as, as bloodthirsty as they've been painted, etc. So this was a time of backfilling and trying to give a different narrative, a, a more positive narrative. How was Jewish religious life conducted in communist Yugoslavia? If you wanted to, you could go to the synagogue. There, um, there wasn't a rabbi after, um, I forget when he died, but uh, the rabbi in Sarajevo, uh, passed away in the, um, I think in the 60s or 70s. And after that, there wasn't a rabbi. There was lay leadership and there were some people who knew the prayers. They could, um, they could lead the congregation in prayer. And so there was a, a some religious life, but largely Jewish life was uh, social and cultural during this time. So they kept their community together. Um, 
by by celebrating the holidays, by you know having parties or commemorations or things like that, uh, by by um, uh, cultural uh, manifestations of, of Jewish life, things like that that wouldn't unduly upset the the administration, the communist administration. We earlier on discussed the Sarajevo Megillah. I'd be curious if you could tell us about the Sarajevo Haggadah. What was the Sarajevo Sarajevo Haggadah? Yeah. Well, this is this is one of the reasons why um, it was hard for me to stop writing this book when I did, uh, because there are so many interesting things that happened to the Bosnian Jews and that they have done. Well, the, the Sarajevo Haggadah was, um, its, it, its origins are a little bit murky. It was, it's a Haggadah, which is um, a book used in Passover during the, the Passover Seder. It may have been um, created in the, um, I'm going to say maybe the 14th century in Spain, and it's it's a beautiful book. It's illuminated, very colorful. Um, it may have been a wedding gift um, to a family, maybe the Elazars. May I, I, you know, like I said, it's kind. Of, there are all sorts of stories about it. Whatever it was, it left with the family probably during the expulsion from Spain in 1492 and made its way, I don't know how, to the Balkans. And a uh, Jewish family by, by the name of Cohen tried to sell it and uh, tried to sell it, I think, to the Sarajevo Jewish community, which couldn't afford it. So uh, the rabbi of the Jewish community at that time alerted the museum that was under um, Austrian, Austro-Hungarian or Austrian um, uh, administration, and they bought it. So What's, what's really important to understand about the Sarajevo Haggadah is that it's considered an invaluable, priceless uh, uh, book, but it's a, a Jewish book, but it was never owned by the Jews of Bosnia. It's tied to them, but it was never owned by them. So it's owned and controlled by the state. And what's, in, what's even more interesting is that everyone in Bosnia, especially in Sarajevo, values this book as a, a Bosnian symbol, even though it's a, a Jewish book. Who, what, can you tell us about Ivan Cereshnish? What was the Cereshnish list? Okay, you pronounced it very well. Thank you. Um, yeah. um, Ivan Cherishnish was the president of the Bosnian Jewish community when the, the Bosnian war broke out. And um, I mentioned, I think, that the, the Bosnian Jews played a really unbelievably positive role during 
during the Bosnian War, helping their neighbors. Um, however they could. They imported food. 40% of the medicine, I understand, in Sarajevo during the war was provided by the Jews. Uh, they even had their own pharmacy that where you could go um, if you had a doctor's prescription, if you could get through the snipers to the pharmacy. Actually, there were three pharmacies in different places that the, that the Jews provided goods for. But if you could get to one of them and you produced a prescription, you could have medicine for free. So that was one of the things that the Jewish community provided to Sarajevo. But specifically, the Cherishnish list was a product of a very important um, thing that the Bosnian Jews did uh, for their Sarajevo neighbors, and that was the convoys. The Bosnian Jews were not at war, and they were allowed to leave via these convoys that were sponsored by the, the JDC. Well, um, the Jews made up, the, the ones who left made up only a third of the people who went out on the convoys. And the Cherishnish list was uh, made up of Serbs, Croats, and Muslims who were at risk or ill uh, and they were allowed to go out on the convoys and, and to, to get onto the list was not easy because the list had to be okayed by the Serbs, by the Muslims, and by the Croats, all of whom were at war. So if somebody on that list was um, not going to be permitted to leave by, you know, so for example, if a Serb uh, was on the list and a Croat and the Croat commander didn't want to give permission, they were, they had to be cut from the list. And uh, people were, you know, very anxious to get on this list and get the heck out of Sarajevo because the siege was horrendous, horrendous. I, I wasn't there, but I've read and many um, uh, memoirs about it, and I've spoken to people who went through it, and it was horrendous. Um, the, the people were subject to, to sniper fire from the Jewish cemetery, no less, which was extraordinarily painful to the, to the Jewish community. Uh, Cherishnish's grandfather, I think, was uh, his grave was in the front row and it was part of a sniper's nest. So people really wanted to get out of, of the siege. And uh, one of the few ways that they could do it was through the Jewish convoys. And that was uh, the Cherishnish list. What role did the Joint Distribution Committee play in the Bosnian War? Well, like I said, they, they, provided, they provided medicine, they, they provided food, um, they, they, they um, provided the convoys, um, which were, by the way, very dangerous because um, the, each convoy had to pass through 30-some different checkpoints. And um, uh, Yvonne told me one time 
that uh, there was a very nasty paramilitary group that hit him um, on his cheek, maybe both cheeks, with a gun barrel, which which broke his jaw in, in both jaws, and he, he actually had to have them um, surgically uh, taken care of. Very dangerous, but the JDC sponsored these these convoys um, by bus and and by uh, car, by truck, etc. Um, they they um, provided money. Um, there there were many friends of. The, the Bosnian Jews, they called them Friends of La Benevolencia, which we haven't talked about yet, but that was the, the Sarajevo um, uh, organization that was a liaison with the, uh, with the JDC. They, they provided um, a lot of cash so that things could be bought for uh, the people that were suffering in Sarajevo. So the, the JDC played a very important role. They had an office in Split in, um, in Croatia, and um, uh, that was, uh, a lot of people went to Split and were taken care of um, by the JDC and other sponsors. Speaking of lab, Benevolencia. Can you tell us about its history and its origins? And can you also kindly tell us about how it came to be re-established, having existed earlier on in the century? How was its response to the Bosnian Civil War uh, similar and different from its responses to other crises in the Balkans in its earlier incarnation? Well, Ari, that could be a whole book in itself. So I'll try and sure. Yeah, I'll try and um, make it short. Um, La Benevolencia was uh, first created by Svardim in I think it's 1892 to be an educational slash humanitarian organization. Particularly, interestingly, it was particularly formed to help. Um, um, young uh, people who were trying to get into a trade, and uh, th they were mainly poor. Svardim were mainly poor, and so this was to help young people get into a trade by um, educating them at least a little, because you know we, they didn't have the kind of educational resources back in the the late nineteenth century that we have now, and to give them. Uh, to buy them the kinds of clothing and tools and things that they needed to, to go into these trades. But as time went on, La Benevolencia started to focus more on education, started to give uh, 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 support to cultural and other kinds of initiatives. And it was, um, I wish I had time to go into, you know, there, there's a large section in the book about things that La Benevolencia did for the, the, um, the Bosnian 
community and how it was recognized even by the, the king of Yugoslavia as a very positive resource for, for Yugoslavia, much less uh, for Bosnia. But anyway, um, as time went on, uh, until World War II, La Benevolencia was an exceedingly positive uh, cultural, educational, and um, a support organization. Of course, in, in, when World War II came, uh, most of the people were killed. And um, after World War II, La Benevolencia was not permitted, like, like other social organizations with a, um, a uh, religious or national tie, was not permitted to um, uh, reform because the Communist Party would take care of all of those, uh, uh, the, the things that La Benevolencia would do. But when Yugoslavia began to collapse, uh, organizations like La Benevolencia were allowed to reform, and uh, indeed they did. And uh, La Benevolencia was just gearing up to be a nice a Jewish uh, uh, humanitarian educational society, and boom, all of a sudden came the war. So they changed gears and became, as I mentioned before, a conduit for um, and a liaison with the JDC and, and other Jewish organizations. And under La Benevolencia, I have in my book a, uh, uh, an organizational chart. La Benevolencia sponsored um, a, a radio station, a post office, um, a people's kitchen that um, uh, people could come if they could make it to the to the Jewish center um, through all the sniper fire. They could get a meal there for free, um, and uh, all sorts of, of other initiatives, uh, cultural initiatives. They ran cultural initiatives even under uh, rifle fire and sniper fire. Just so La Benevolencia grew to be this major organization um, that was run by Jews, but was welcoming other people, um, for example, um, into their pharmacy and into their um, uh, home health care system. Uh, so it was Jewish, um, Jewish sponsored, but it welcomed volunteers from all nations and religions. There's a lot more that I could say about it, but um, I sure. don't know that we have time. <laughs> sure. Um, can you tell the story of the People's Kitchen in Sarajevo during the war? Yeah. The, excuse me. <laughs> That's pretty interesting, too. That's one of the initiatives of La Benevolencia, a a restaurateur uh, named Josef Abinun with the nickname of Tsitsko. What a character. He's a real character. Um, he, of course, you couldn't run a restaurant during the war, so he became the chef at the Jewish Center and um, 
uh, firewood and, and electricity and all of those things were at a premium. So he got himself a big pot and used to throw whatever food he could and, and make healthy meals for whoever, like I said, could get there and people could um, they, they could have a meal and if they could bring something along with them, they could have um, extra food that they could take home with them. So it was called a people's kitchen and, and it was run freely by the Jewish community. And Sitzko, as far as I know, I haven't been to Sarajevo in the last since COVID, but as far as I know, he's still the head of the restaurant. Now, of course, they charge a little bit of money for the for meals um, during the war. It was free, but um, not a lot. I mean, it's a, and really good food, delicious food. Wow. <laughs> what was Bohoreta? How did Bohoreta come into existence? Bocharetta was a, a women's group under this rubric. And um, the, during, during the communist era, there was a women's section uh, in, in the Jewish community that took care of uh, parties and um, putting together cultural events. When the war began, this women's section uh, morphed into still a women's section, but they took the name Bucharetta uh, to honor a, um, a uh, pre-World War II uh, uh, author and playwright, Laura Papa Bucharetta. Bucharetta, by the way, is a name given to the firstborn. Um, uh, it's uh, Bochor is is a male firstborn. Bucharetta is a female firstborn. That's what I understand. So anyway, her name was Laura Papo, but it was Laura Papo Bucharetta. And so they took this name um, and they became really one of the driving engines for the Jewish community during the war. They created a uh, visiting doctors and nurses section. So anybody with, with uh, medical training, risking life and limb under sniper fire and everything would go to people's apartments if they couldn't get out and come to either the pharmacy or to, they, they ran a clinic the, um, the uh, physician from the at the clinic was a, uh, a Muslim man, and uh, there was a, a Serbian Orthodox dentist. Um, anyway, all of these initiatives that the women ran, including a, a school, so they, you know, there were still children under siege. So they invited Jewish children to come to religion, to, to school, to some kind of school. There was some religion, you know, talking about holidays and everything, but, but just to um, uh, uh, keep them, you know, from being afraid or something. But the, the Jewish children wanted to bring their friends Serbs, Croats, and Muslims, and they um, they accepted them. So, so this was. Um, I remember um, interviewing Sonia Elazar, who was the 
the head of Bocaretta and also the principal of the school. And she said that one time they had a Purim show where there was, I think a Muslim was, uh, uh, played the hero and um, a, a, a Serbian girl, I think maybe was Queen Esther and the Jew, a Jewish boy was, was the villain. So everybody uh, was able to um, participate and it mitigated um, the, the fear of, of what was going on outside. Who was Ingmar Lindgren? Why, oh, yeah. why is he noteworthy? Okay, very interesting character. I never met him, um, but I heard tales about him. He was a um, Swedish, I think he was a Swedish violinist who uh, came to stand with the the um, uh, with the the community, but they didn't need a violinist, so. Um, he had a very valuable um, commodity. It was a, a United Nations High Commission for Refugees card, a UNHCR card, uh, identity card that let him fly in and out of Sarajevo. So they said, we don't need you to teach violin, but how would you like to be our mailman? And so apparently he took letters in and out of Sarajevo, sometimes two or three times a day, I understand. And um, so, you know, that all sorts of interesting things happened during the war. All sorts of people volunteered to do all sorts of interesting things that were needed by the people of Sarajevo. How was COVID-19 handled in Bosnia? What impact did it have on Bosnia and Herzegovina in general and on Bosnian Jews in particular? I'm led to believe that Bosnia had one of the lowest vaccination rates in Europe for a long time. And COVID really killed them, really did a job on, on Bosnia. It also, unfortunately, did a job on the Bosnian Jewish community. The, um, the cantor, the longtime cantor, uh, David, uh, David Kamfi, um, passed away um, around the same time as his brother-in-law. Um, the wife of the president of the Sarajevo Jewish community passed away. Um, almost everybody had some form of COVID, whether it was light or heavy. But it, um, I, I don't have figures, but I, I'm led to believe that it really decimated the community. Um, it was not kind to the Jewish community. How have Jews in contemporary Bosnia dealt with anti-Semitism? Unfortunately, 
Um, that's something that has arisen far more recently than ever before in the history of the Jews in Bosnia. Um, some people think it's because of the influx of radical Muslims uh, coming into, um, into Bosnia. Um, so uh, let me put that into context. Um, some radical Muslims came in to fight on the Muslim side during the Bosnian War, and some of them didn't leave. Most of them left, but some of them didn't leave. They married Bosnian women and stayed. And also, um, Bosnia is the European country with a Muslim plurality that is closest to Western Europe. And so it's seen as kind of, I think, uh, I'm speculating here, I think it's seen as kind of a potential entry point to Europe. So um, when I was uh, when I was in Bosnia, I, I spent many years, many summers in Bosnia, and I saw more and more and more evidence of um, uh, Islam, a more conservative Islam uh, in the streets, even the, the way the women dress and everything. When I first got there, um, there was very little evidence of that because the, the Bosnian Muslims are of the Hanafi right, most of them, which is a very liberal uh, Muslim uh, right. But uh, now um, there are more and more people of more conservative uh, uh, bent coming in and influencing the youth there. Um, and so the, um, the tensions in the Middle East are now um, starting to uh, make their way into Bosnia and there, um, there's um, a lot of, of anti-Jewish uh, feeling and there are more and more anti-Jewish um, demonstrations. I, I personally saw uh, graffiti that was anti-Jewish and this was maybe a decade ago, I, I was just walking along the street and I saw a swastika. I also saw um, a swastika equals an, a Jewish star. So, you know, fascism and, and Judaism were, were being um, equated. And it was very painful to see because Bosnia has such a long history of uh, mutual tolerance among the various um, religious groups and national groups. And, and it's very painful to see that things are, are slowly changing. Have Bosnian Holocaust survivors received any form of reparations? And, and how have Jews in the Balkans dealt with the question of plundered Jewish property during the Holocaust? It took a while, I understand, for Bosnian Jews to actually get money from the claims court. But um, I think they, they are now. So, so they're uh, like other 
um, Jews in uh, in in Europe. Um, getting their property back. And, and by the way, um, at one time, I understand something like, I don't know, like 25% or more of Sarajevo was in Jewish hands. Um, uh, uh, no, the, the, um, the, the problem is that people... Um, the people in charge, the the administration, um, uh, doesn't doesn't have a plan <laughs> for um, returning property that was uh, stolen, literally stolen from the Jews during the Holocaust, and and the reason is uh, was explained to me partially by um, a, a, the former prime minister, the wartime prime minister of Bosnia, who said that, well, yeah, it is a problem. Um, the Jews were, um, all of their property, all of their businesses, all of their artwork, all of their um, money was stolen. But we have to worry now about the, um, the, the people the, the refugees and, and the um, displaced people from the Bosnian war. And so we have to give them places to live. So I asked him, um, you know, do you have any problem with giving or even selling property that really belongs to somebody else? Um, and he said, well, this is a problem that needs to be resolved, but right now we you know, we have other things <laughs> on our list. So um, um, Bosnia um, is, is making little to no um, progress in restitution or reparations. Shame. Can you describe your personal visit to Bosnia and Herzegovina that inspired your interest in the topic that inspired this work? Oh, how long do you have? <laughs> Whatever you have available. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Um, uh, well, I, as I said, I spoke with Jakob Vinci, um, you know, 20 some years ago, and I was just inspired by the fact that this very small group of people, number one, loved their city, loved their country so much that even though it was at war and they had a chance to leave, they stubbornly stayed to, to help their city to be a part of its reconstruction. So that was, um, that inspired me to look deeper into the, um, into the, the, to this, this group and where they came from. I mean, th they didn't just drop out of the sky. So that made me want to go back and see where they came from. And then I discovered that, um, you know, they, the large group of them uh, for, for that time came um, from Spain. And then um, the, the Ashkenazim came with the Austro-Hungarians uh, after Austria-Hungary occupied Bosnia in 1878. And um, it, it just inspired me to see how a small group of people um, became such an integral part of their country and a valued 
part of their country and they were Jews. And, and like I said, um, uh, I think previously, Jews throughout history have not really fared very well. Um, and um, this was a, this was um, counter to Jewish history because this was a very positive, not mostly, positive experience for the Jews, except, of course, for World War II. And things are getting a little rocky right now. Uh, of course, they're getting rocky all over the world, but, but also for the, for the Bosnian Jews. So um, that's what inspired me to look more deeply into this community. And I'm so glad that I did. That there, uh, the, the people that I met there were simply lovely, very welcoming. And I have to say that um, I, I'm an Ohio girl. I was born a Buckeye and uh, hadn't done too much world travel. And when I, um, when I got to Sarajevo, I was shocked at how much I had in common with some of the people there. Um, certainly they had um, very interesting and exotic things in certain respects. But my gosh, we, we had so many of the same um, uh, interests and uh, reactions to things. And some of my dearest friends still reside there and I miss them very much. COVID destroyed my capability of going there for several years. So um, I, they're very lovely, inspiring community. And, and uh, I'm so glad that by accident, <laughs> I, I discovered them. What a miracle in hindsight. Really, really. As we bring our dialogue to a close, um, would you be kind enough to tell us what you're working on next as your current project, what you're working on now as your subsequent project? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, um, once, I, once I finished the book, I, I, let me say that I really didn't want to finish the book. Um, it's um, more than 900 pages, and I really wanted to keep going, but um, it was time, and I think I um, almost exceeded the binding capabilities of my publisher. But um, there were some things that I thought maybe that I would uh, want to go deeper into. One of them is restitution, to look into uh, the question of, of um, uh, restitu post-World post War II restitution, um, specifically in Bosnia, but also maybe throughout both Eastern and Western Europe, I thought that might be um, uh, something to do. And I've, I've started that. Um, there may be one or two people that stuck in my mind that I, I would like to, to dig deeper into their biographies. Um, and um, maybe something more on La Benevolencia or some of the, the more interesting um, and unique facets of the Bosnian Jewish community. But um, having just finished publishing this book, I'm, I'm at sixes and 
Kevin's trying to decide what to do next, but I've already started looking uh, a little bit at restitution. So anyway, that that's where my trajectory may have. Amazing. I wish you much luck and Hatzlacha with that endeavor. Thank you so much. Um, to our listeners, I am your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books Network. I have been honored to be in dialogue today with Dr. Francine Friedman. Francine is Emerita Professor of Political Science at Ball State University in Indiana. We have been discussing her new book, Like Salt for Bread, The Jews of Bosnia and Herzegovina, published by Brill in 2022. Thank you. <laughs>